Let's open up our Bibles, if you would be willing to do so and able to do so, to the book of Ephesians. And we're picking up in chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. Ephesians 3, 14. This is the Word of God. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Father, we ask this morning that you would stoop to meet with your people in the sanctuary of the building which we have set apart for you and built to the glory of your name. We ask, Lord Jesus, that you would come and visit us and make your word to live in our hearts and our minds so that we leave here a little different than we came in the door. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you want to take appropriate care of something, you have to possess at least a certain amount of understanding of the thing that you want to care for. And that's true whether you're talking about a rose bush or an automobile or your body. For instance, I just read an article on Friday in a British newspaper and a group of scientists has just released an, a, a report that's based on about 27 different studies, I believe the number was, of certain, the effect of certain chemicals that they are now calling obesogens. And these chemicals are widely present all around us, and plastics are one of the main places that we find these chemicals and are exposed to them, but also we find them in Teflon, in your skillet and waterproofing chemicals for clothing and chemicals that make clothing more fire retardant, which is a, like, for instance, a federal requirement for children's sleepwear. And there are about 50 of these chemicals of concern right now. And what these chemicals seem to do as the research is unfolding is actually to reset the body's fat thermostat upwards so that your body wants to pack on more weight and it thinks a heavier weight is where you need to be, so it's constantly pushing you to, to eat more and, and it's constantly modifying your body processes so that you're more efficient at accumulating and keeping fat. And the interesting thing is that if you look at all the, the research, uh, there's been a threefold increase in obesity worldwide since 1975. And they've, for instance, studied 
people who have come from a very traditional, more or less isolated area, like say the island of Madagascar or certain islands in the South Pacific, who had no problem with obesity and they move into a more industrialized society and all of a sudden something changes and they start packing on the weight a little bit more. And when you correlate the chart of the increase in obesity with the increase in exposure to all these chemicals through things like plastic soda bottles and plastic liners used in food cans to protect flavors, it's quite remarkable, really. And some of these chemicals can even alter your DNA and make your children predisposed to gain weight. And if this is correct, then medicine has been actually focusing on the wrong thing when they try and deal with the epidemic of obesity. Quoted in the article was a woman named Professor Barbara Corky. She's from Boston University School of Medicine and she's the past president of the Obesity Society. And she said, the initial worldview was that obesity is caused by eating too much and exercising too little. This is nonsense. It is not an explanation because all the creatures on earth, including humans, eat when they're hungry and stop when they are full. Every cell in the body knows if you have enough food, she said. Something has disrupted that normal sensing apparatus, and it is not volition or the human will. People who are overweight and obese go to tremendous extremes to lose weight, and the diet industry has fared extremely well, Quirky said. We've learned that it doesn't work. And it may be that medical science can come up with a, a new solution for obesity or at least strategies for avoiding exposure to these chemicals as we learn more. But the point made by this professor, Barbara Corky from Boston University, is this. A lack of understanding of the cause of the rise in obesity has led to inappropriate and ineffective treatments for obesity, which in turn, she says, has led to blaming the patient. And she says this a little later on in the article, when the medical profession doesn't understand something, we always blame the patient. If you want to care for something appropriately, you have to understand it. Well, that's actually been one of my main goals here as your pastor. I'm trying to teach you what the Bible says about you and about your parts particularly the invisible parts and how they work and how they interact together. And I'm doing that in the hopes of increasing your understanding of yourself and other people so that with God's help, you can care for yourself and your other, and, and other people rather in an appropriate way, in a way that increases goodness and well-being and health of your whole self and of, the, of other selves that you live with and interact with and that are all around you. And this passage in Ephesians chapter 3 uh, offers us an opportunity to increase our understanding and then under God to increase our well-being. Because that's what Jesus is ultimately after for you and me. The restoration of the whole person as each part is put right under God. 
So let's start off, first of all, with a fundamental misunderstanding which has been inflicted on us for the last few hundred years. And this misunderstanding is, is kind of subtle, and it's not something that you'd necessarily think about, but professional thinkers think about it. And, and in this misunderstanding, the human being is conceived of, in its basic nature, as a thinking thing. The human being is basically, in, our, in this understanding, a brain, a brain on a stick. Now, sure, there are all kinds of other things going on, but the most basic and fundamental fact about us in this view is that we think, we reason. And so, for instance, in the 19th century, when anthropologists sought to give modern humans a scientific name, we were given the name Homo sapiens, which means wise man, because we're thinkers. Our whole model of economics for most of the 20th century was built upon the idea that people always made rational decisions with their money that were in their own self-interest, and this was called the rational actor theory. And whenever there's a social problem that is destructive to the fabric of our society, the remedy that is always put forth is always a program of some kind of education. Because if we can just educate people, we think, they'll just do the right thing. Now, each one of these examples predisposes that our most basic nature, that the thing that drives our behavior is how we think. And if we just fix our thinking or get educated or whatever, um, it will solve all of our problems. However, it turns out that that's not exactly true, and they're figuring that out in places like economics. As a matter of fact, the last three Nobel Prizes that have been given out in the science of economics have been given out to people who've proved that we are not rational when we make decisions with our money. Now, how we think is important, for sure. It's very important. But thinking is not what fundamentally drives us. Modern social science is finally beginning to catch up to what the scriptures have taught all along and to what one of my personal heroes, an ancient North African theologian named St. Augustine, so clearly taught and unfolded in all of his works, which are 16, 1700 years old. The basic nature of a human being is not a thinking creature. The basic nature of a human being is of a desiring creature. We are basically motivated by desire, which is to say, another way of putting that is, we are motivated by love. And our loves are always directed at something. Our loves are always directed ultimately at some kind of a vision of a good or a blessed or a happy life. And we, we fit everything we do into that grid of I am a desiring creature and what I am desiring is a good and a happy life. And all these other decisions I'm making are, make, are made on the basis of will that get me closer to what I think is a good and happy life. So for instance, I'm... I'm, I'm I'm desperately desiring a pickup truck right now. I really am. And uh, I just don't quite have enough money, and the price of pickups has gone through the roof. And I, so I feel your pain, Wally, having to drive that Chevy Colorado two-wheel drive. That's sad, sad thing. No man should have to put up with that. And uh, 
and so I, th I just was thinking about all the different uh, ways that cars are advertised to us or, or marketed to us. So, so we see a car, for instance, and if, if our vision of the good life is one in which we can get from point A to point B very reliably and very predictably and very cheaply, and if our vision of the good life includes the fact that we hate the idea of being broken down on a highway or of spending huge sums of money on gas and maintenance and repair, then we are liable to find the Toyota Corolla or something like that to be very attractive. And, and there's, people buy it because there's safety and economy and reliability built into it. And for some of us, that kind of predictability, that kind of um, limited liabilities, shall we say, is your vision of the good life, is your vision of what a life of well-being is. I know that, and, and that was why actually I bought the car I'm driving now. I'd had one junker after another and it just, I couldn't believe the, the streak of luck I had. And finally I was like, I'm just gonna go buy something that I know is gonna work and I don't have to lay a wrench on for five years. And so I went out and bought the car that I've got because that was my vision of well-being. I didn't like the idea of walking down the highway in the middle of winter in South Dakota. If we see ourselves as tough and woodsy and as outdoorsmen, as hunters or fishermen or hikers, people who split logs with one mighty swing of the ax, then it's a safe bet that the vehicle that speaks to us of the good life is four-wheel drive, and it has perhaps a six to eight foot bed and an extra couple of inches of body lift. If we want to be seen, if our idea of the good life is of a, a person who's sophisticated and educated, a person who's elegant and tasteful, a person of some means, then our vision of the good life is liable to, find, to be one that we find in glossy magazines or in Manhattan or Pebble Beach. And so then we'll be attracted to the Mercedes or the Jaguar or the Maybach or the Bentley. Yeah, everyone's vision of the good life is a little bit different. You know, it's interesting. I tried to find, because um, I tried to find how are they, after I thought about this, how are they marketing minivans, right? Because that's not a vehicle that, that people, they buy it, but they don't love it, right? And so you go through, and I went through about four or five minivan commercials, and you know what the general gist of the minivan commercial is? Buy this, it will keep you from killing your kids. That's it. <laughs> There was a Honda even that had a, a vacuum inside of the minivan where you could just pull the hose out of the back of the thing and vacuum up all the cereal on the floor and everything. And, and the whole point was it will get you as far away from your children while they're fighting as you can be going down the road together, and then it will be easy to clean up. This thing will help you not to kill your children. And that was, that was the best they could do. So for those of you that drive minivans, now you know what, what, really, what your vision of the kingdom is, Okay what your vision of the good life is. Every, but everyone's vision is a little bit different. And you'll find that when the right one is presented to you, it will awaken inside of you tremendous desire. And then that's where the thinking comes in because your mind will begin trying to figure out how to obtain that which you desire. 
And on our day, smart people know this, and that's why they advertise cars and everything else like they do. They show the Chevy Silverado 4x4 climbing mountain trails and crossing streams, and the Mercedes and the Lexus announcer in the commercial always sounds like a commentator for NPR. What are they saying? What they're saying is come by this automobile and you'll be a little closer to obtaining your vision of the good life. And of course, there are some other visions of the good life that haunt us. Some people have spent their whole life longing for a relationship with another person that will make them feel whole and accepted and loved and cherished and safe. This is very common. For some, the good life that they chase is given form and a shape by having a certain kind of body or living in a certain kind of house or receiving a certain kind of recognition from some group of people or even some one person that matters to us or to attaining a certain level of education or to having a certain career or to having the ability to travel and have experiences. Some people spend their whole lives trying to win the approval of one person. And for them, the good life would be a life where that person just smiled at them and said, you did a good job, and I am so proud of you, and then never, ever again undermined that glow of acceptance with another critical comment. Never again. This is what really drives us, folks. We are deeply, deeply motivated by all that we do by a vision of the good life. A, a vision of the good life that we love and that we desire and that we orient our lives around pursuing in whatever way we can. And when we lose that, or when we attain it and are disappointed in it because it doesn't fulfill our expectations, then we are depressed. We are disoriented. Some of us even fall into despair and desperation. And our lives lack purpose. They lack an organizing principle. We're lost and we're rudderless, flailing about trying to find some basis upon which we can organize and run our lives because the vision of the good life that had been orienting our whole lives up until that point is gone. And we don't know who we are. And we don't know what we should do. And we're confused. And it leads to a crisis. We are all lovers. We are all desirers. And we are all chasing a vision of the good life. Or to put it another way, we are all worshipers seeking a particular vision of the kingdom. What we are pursuing probably is good in and of itself, but it's also incomplete. It's also a partial good. And it, and it can't really bear the weight that we're trying to, to put on it, to make it the thing which will make us content and happy in the world. And that's one of the big problems with the way that the world lives. Another big problem is that we are quite willing and often uh, feel that we even have to do evil in order to attain the good thing that we are seeking. And that turns out to be one of the devil's greatest schemes. Yes, I finally found the person who will make me happy and complete me. 
but I happen to be married to this other person here who doesn't. So what do I need to do? Well, I, I gotta be happy. So I'll repudiate this commitment to chase this one. And it almost always turns to ashes in our mouth. Everybody wants to be good. I, I, I've never met anybody, saved or not saved, who didn't want to be a good person. But I've also never met anybody, saved or unsaved, who wasn't willing to do evil to acquire that which they desperately wanted. And this is one of the devil's greatest tricks. Now, now everything, and, and here's the, the big takeaway from today. Everything that is good, everything that is wholesome, everything that is healthy and right about each of these particular visions of the good life is found in all of its fullness and all of its goodness in the kingdom of God, which is available to us right now in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That good thing that you are seeking in the affair or the good thing that you are seeking by purchasing the car or by trying to please the unpleasable person will not be found in the affair or the car or the person that you're trying to please. It will be found in the kingdom of God as you step into it and begin learning how to walk with Jesus in that kingdom right now, right here where you are. In the kingdom, says Jesus, you will find rest for your soul. You will find peace. You will find joy. You will find contentment. You will find safety and security. You will find reputation and recognition from those who are genuinely desiring your good and who are not interested in competing with you and whose approval matters the most. And instead of losing it all when you die, as you do when you pursue these lesser things, you come into the fullness of it when you die in the kingdom of God. You will never, ever lose it. It just gets better and better and better. You see, every effort to secure your ultimate happiness and well-being will be made by God himself in the kingdom. And God has all power, and he has all wisdom, and he is kindly disposed towards those who truly seek him. Another way of saying this is you will be loved and you will know that love by experience as a deep sensation, not merely as a word rattling around in your head or as an abstract concept in the pages of a book. You will be loved and you will know that love. You will taste that love. You will feel that love and it will fix you. It will repair your soul. That's what, remember the 23rd Psalm? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That means I won't lack anything that I need. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. What kind of sheep lies down in green pastures? One that's full. He leads me beside still waters. You know what kind of sheep is, is laying beside still waters? One that's had all he wants to drink. He restores my soul. And the love of God, given to you, mediated through Jesus Christ, restores your soul. This love, it's agape in Greek, 
is a sincere and an unwavering desire for another person's well-being, as God defines that well-being, and a willingness to do all that is within your power to accomplish that well-being. So think about that for a minute. That's the definition of agape love. I, I, I see you. I, I see what will tend to your well-being as God defines it. And I'm willing to do everything that's in my power to achieve your well-being. That's to be loved. Now think about that for a minute. Think about that definition when we start saying God loves us. That takes on staggeringly large dimensions when the lover is God and the beloved is you and me. And in this passage today, Paul begins to unpack that. And Paul speaks in verse 14 of bowing his knees before the Father. Now, we don't understand the significance of that because we aren't Jewish and we didn't live in the first century. Jews prayed standing. They would stand before the Lord with their hands open. When someone bowed the knee, it was because they were staggered by the presence and power and goodness of God. They were overwhelmed with it. They were driven to their knees. Their, their knees buckled under them and they fell to their knees because they were too overwhelmed to stand. And that's what's happening to Paul here as he prays for these Ephesian believers. He says, my, I, I'm so caught up with the goodness of this prayer and the, the vision of what God wants to do for you, O oh, Ephesian believers, that my knees buckle under me. And what does he pray for them? He prays that they would be given power by the Holy Spirit. Given power to do what? They will be given power to do two things. First of all, they will be given power that the person of Christ would dwell in their hearts. Now, that is the appropriate way to think about the indwelling Christ. A few weeks ago, I mentioned that Jesus, the, the Bible never presents the gospel as asking Jesus to come into your heart as though that would save you. Never presents the gospel that way. The Bible never talks about the first move of salvation whereby we are justified and our sins are forgiven in terms of the indwelling of Christ. Rather, we're always told to do one thing, sometimes two, but they're two sides of the same coin. We're told to repent and believe, and sometimes we're just told to believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. The salvation is by grace through faith, and it's critically important that we get that right because it is the only vehicle through which the saving grace of Christ has been promised in the Scriptures to come to us so that our sins might be forgiven. But Paul isn't talking to people in this letter who haven't received Jesus yet and need to. He's talking to believers here in Ephesians chapter 3. He spent the whole first three chapters talking about what God has done to these believers as, as they have uh, had blessing upon blessing heaped upon them. He's speaking to believers here, and he's speaking to them about something that might or might not have happened to them yet. But even if it has happened, says Paul, he wants their experience of the indwelling Christ 
to be strengthened and to be deepened. So this isn't a, a passage about being born again. This is a passage about being transformed, about the divine power coming into us so that some things can happen in here that will tend to our transformation. And the first thing is that Jesus would come and dwell in your heart. Now, there are, are two basic words in Greek for, for dwell or, or live. One is the word used for someone who's staying somewhere for a relatively short period of time. You know, in English, we would say, if you're traveling, we would say, where are you staying? Right? Well, I'm staying at the, at the Radisson Hotel, or I'm staying at the Holiday Inn Express. Okay? But I, I won't be staying there for long. I might be there for a day or two, I might be there for a week, but sooner or later, I'm going to vacate because it was never intended to be my permanent home. It's, all, it's used in the Bible of people who are aliens and strangers, who are refugees living in another country for a little while, and then when things settle down back home, they're able to go home. They don't live there permanently, they, they stay there for a little while. That is not the word that's used here. The word that's used here is used of your permanent home, and it's particularly used of the man who is the head of the household and the owner of the home. And he's saying, you know, one would expect the householder to come home and want things to be set in order as he wants his home to run. And this is the word used of Jesus, that he would come into your heart and he would dwell there as a householder, as an owner and that he would begin setting things in your heart like he wants them, arranging the furniture of your inward life, so to speak, like he wants it. And he's gonna plant the flowers, and he's gonna paint the walls whatever color he wants, and he's gonna put into the garden what he wants in the garden. And that's the word that Paul is using here. It conveys the idea that Jesus is entering into your heart to make you into an appropriate and comfortable place for him to dwell. He will be remodeling your heart, in other words. And what Paul says is that you need a certain measure of power from God just to be willing and able and happy for him to come into your heart and dwell there. And why, does he, why do we need that power? Well, because you are much more messed up than you imagine. And God needs to do some things to you just so you want what's best for you. Because we don't always want what's best for us when we're honest with ourselves. And if he didn't, if he didn't do that, we would never start, stop rather chasing the partial vision of the good life that has obsessed us all of our lives. There's a second thing that we need God's power to do, and that's to begin to know the love of Christ. Now, in the Bible, to know someone or to know something is not simply to be in possession of facts about that person or about that thing. It's to have knowledge that is based on intimate experience. And Paul says here, you need power from God to know through experience 
about Christ's astonishing love for you. And the reason that you need power to know from experience about Christ's astonishing love for you is that otherwise you would never believe it because it would sound too good to be true. Indeed, it's such an astonishing love that Paul calls it a love that surpasses knowledge. He actually says, I want you to know a love that is too big and too deep to ever be fully known. I I just want you to have a, a taste of that, and it will transform everything about you. And when you start to know that love, all of your troubles begin to fade away. Remember that, remember that old hymn, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You see, when you know the love of Christ like this, all your tears are washed away. All your fears and all of your anxieties cease. Your hearts And the doubts in your hearts are quiet. And all your wounds miraculously stop hurting. And your whole being is at rest. Because the one who loves you with this massive love has all knowledge, including all knowledge of you and your situation, and how you were put together, and what would make you happy, and tend to your well-being. You know, your soul, says C.S. Lewis, has a secret signature. It's got a unique shape. It, It desires unique things, and God made it that way. And there are some people that you can share your soul with, and they kind of get it, and you become friends because you kind of have a vision that's common about about what is wonderful and good and satisfying, you know. People who find each other based on hobbies and things like that very often understand each other better than people who are married to each other because they see each other's souls. They say, I I see, God made you that way too. But it's never complete. It's never 100% identification. But the God who made the secret signature of your soul and who loves you with a love that you can't even know the fullness of, wants to fulfill every longing of your soul. He wants to because he loves you and he has all knowledge about you. He knows you better than you know you. And he just pours himself into you. I, I, I don't know how it will be, but I, I, I could see, you know, we get to heaven and, and we discover that uh, we've got a, a mansion and everybody's mansion will be just right. All, all, those, all those homes that you watched on HGTV or, you know, whatever, that people are fixing up and flipping and buying and selling and the ones you went, oh, that's beautiful. Your mansion will, be, will do that to you. You walk in there, you go, this is the place I have always dreamed of. Now, when I walked into the house that I bought here in Youngstown, that's what I said. This is the place that I have always dreamed of. 
And it was a historic home, and it's got almost an acre of woods and a creek and running through it and everything else. And I thought, oh, this is beautiful. Well, when you buy a historic home, you get historic plumbing, and you get historic wiring, and you get a historic roof with historic windows that don't historically open, and all these other things. And I said to my, because last night it started raining in my window in my bedroom, and I said, I hate this house. No, I don't. I hated it then. But when you get to heaven, your mansion, windows won't leak. There won't be any ice dams putting water in the wall. All the windows will open. And they'll have screens on them to keep the bugs out. There won't be any bugs anyway in heaven. I'm pretty sure there won't be any bugs. Definitely no mosquitoes, right? Stink bugs either. I, don't, I think Satan invented the stink bug. And it'll be just right for you. And you'll say, this is the home I've been looking for my whole life. And it'll be yours. Perfectly made for you by the one who knows you better than you know you. And you will be at rest and full of joy. Jesus wants you to be free from pain and sorrow and suffering as quickly as possible. He wants you radiant and joyous and full of glory. Now, sometimes as quickly as possible is not as quick as we would like. Yeah? But he wants that. And he's making every effort to bring those things about in his time and in his wisdom. And if you learn how to cooperate with him, very often you can shorten that time. But he wants you happy in him. And he wants you to have every good thing that it is safe to give you. Because he loves you. He loves you more than your mama ever loved you, or your daddy, or your grandma, or your grandpa, or your children. He loves you. And he knows you. And he has all power. So when someone knows what you need, wants to give it to you, and is able to give it to you, what is the only obstacle? Probably you. Maybe time and situation need to change in his providence, and he'll bring that about. But that's who our God is. He loves you. He wants to bless you. And if you, by his power, become a fit dwelling for him, the blessings keep coming more and more. Because that's who he is. That's who our God is. He's so big and so mighty and so powerful, he always gets his way. As a matter of fact, the only person that can stop him from pouring his effective love all over you is you. And Jesus tells us this himself, and we're going we're to wind up here. But, but look at John chapter 14, because he, he says something here, and he says it in a way that you can read right past it and not really think of the implications of it, but it, it is kind of odd. In John 14 and verse 21... You figure after 30 years of pastoral ministry, I'd be able to find the book of John. But anyway, John 14 and verse 21, listen to what he says. Whoever has my commandments 
and keeps them is he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. It's a conditional future tense. If you do this, and apparently you do this over a period of time because it's future tense, you will be loved by my Father. And I, Jesus, will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and then we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. This is not a salvation text. This is a sanctification text. This is not a justification text. This is a sanctification text. Listen to what he says. You keep my commandments, and I'll know you love me. And because you're doing this, I will come, and my Father will love you. Now, did the Father love you before? I think so, yeah. But you didn't understand it. It wasn't accessible to you, not with power. You may have said, oh, yes, the Lord loves me. But you didn't act like it was true. You didn't know it by experience. But when you press into Jesus, when you begin obeying his commandments because you love him, then his love becomes more and more manifest to you. So the more that you love him and obey him, by, and that's how you show your love, it's not by, I have such loving feelings for Jesus. It's by doing what he tells you to do. The more you do that, the more of God and his presence and power and love you will experience. And he will come, and they will come, and make a home with you. That's what Jesus says. It's right there. They will come and make a home with you. And the intimacy that you have with your loving Lord will, will just overshadow your life. It will fill you with such goodness that they could throw you in prison as they did Madame Guillaume or Teresa of Avila. And you just sit there and sing, waiting for Jesus to spring you out of prison if that's his will. It will fill you with such love and power that they could arrest you and take everything you had and say, deny Jesus or we'll kill you. And like Polycarp, you would say, oh, I've been walking with him for 80 years now, and he's never done me any wrong. I could never do that to him. Go ahead and burn me alive. It's okay. You will come to know the love of God in such a way that like the father of Richard Cameron in Scotland in the 1600s, when they presented him in prison with his own son's head and hands, and said, do you know them? He said, aye, I know them. They are my own dear sons. Blessed be the Lord who has never done anything wrong to me. That's the kind 
of love we're talking about here. Friends, set your face to do his commands. Seek his power so that you can truly know him and he will dwell with you and he will love you in a way that you can taste and experience and it will change you to your very depths. This is his promise. Given in his infallible word, he wants to draw all the poison out of your life and make you whole by his love. Will you let him? Amen.